Hey, good morning, Daniel. How's it going? Good morning, Evan. This is one of our first morning podcasts in a while. So I'm up. I still have coffee with me. I hope that's okay. My coffee cup is the Steamtown National Historic T- Site uh, coffee. So it has like different symbols that like train workers would like say like, is this town safe or there's a dog? So that's what I'm drinking out of this morning. How are you doing? I'm okay. It, it's very early on the West Coast uh, at 6.30. So uh, I too have coffee. Mine is a uh, unicorn doing a dab. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, uh, I'm sure people watching will be able to see it. Uh, yeah, so I'm excited for today's episode. Uh, we are all the way on to episode 11. Um, we are getting a closer look on how... Uh, Oh God! I always butcher this generative AI and how it's gonna um, impact revenue cycles. So I'm sure I butchered that. Our guest will fix it here in a minute. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, should we just jump straight in? I think so. It's real early. So let's just rock and roll. <laughs> All right. So I get to introduce our guest today. Um, just uh, give a little bit of background, uh, passionate about the power of data, statistics, and machine learning to solve problems in healthcare and make it easier for providers to care for patients. Uh, and so before their current position with Janus, uh, worked at Encore Medical using machine learning to provide decision support for oncologists and g- generate real-world data-supporting clinical trials. Uh, currently the Director of Data Science with Janus. Uh, pleasure to welcome you, Chris Ahern. Thanks for joining us. Hey guys, uh, thanks for thanks for getting up early. I appreciate that, um, and thanks for, for having me. Yeah, no, happy happy to get up early. Uh, I'm usually up, just not fully functioning at this hour. <laughs> All right. Well, we thought for using our hot talk big segment um, here, we get some background and re-level our listeners on. Um, uh, anything that around machine learning and kind of what it is and how and how um, people are kind of using it in the revenue cycle and healthcare space today. Yeah, so um, maybe what I'll start with is kind of, you know, what is machine learning? Kind of what are the different kinds of, you know, things we can do with it? Um, and then talk a little bit about, um, you know, what Janus is doing with machine learning. And I think later on, we'll talk about, you know, generative AI. So that is like, that's a hard word to say. Um, but we'll kind of get into what that actually means and how it how it can and probably can't be used um, and sort of ways to think about how we apply that. Um, so to kind of take it from a high level, you know, what is machine learning? Uh, it's a set of tools uh, and techniques uh, that are used to kind of learn things from data. Um, and that's pretty, pretty generic. So if we take that down a level, there's kind of generally speaking, two kinds of machine learning. Uh, one is called unsupervised learning and the other is called supervised learning. So in unsupervised learning, you have a lot of data, but you don't really know the ground truth, right? You're trying to discover patterns and find things out about the data. So it's a little bit more exploratory. Uh, so an example might be if you you have a large data set and you do some kind of like clustering, right? You say, what, what are the patterns in this data? And then can I interpret them further? Uh, the other kind of uh, machine learning or sort of the other paradigm is supervised learning. And we can think of like two key examples of this. Um, One is regression. So this is where you're trying to kind of learn the relationship between, you know, certain aspects of data and some continuous output. And the other is classification, where you're looking at like features and you're trying to predict a class. So uh, examples of this would be, you know, if you ever had, you know, 
you know, outcome data that was like a dollar amount you're trying to predict. And if you ever just sort of plotted, you know, um, certain features and sort of the outcome you're, you're like the dollar amount you're trying to, to get at uh, and trying to understand, and you said, could I draw a line through those, right? So if you've made that plot, that's just kind of like a simple form of regression. Um, if you've ever been trying to understand, you know, whether, which, um, you know, how things fall into different kinds of buckets or classes, that's classification, right? So generally speaking, uh, uh, for supervised learning, what you'll do is you'll take uh, a large data set, if you have it, uh, and sort of the ground truth that you're trying to predict, and you'll give that to a particular algorithm that trains a model to kind of learn sort of from inputs, uh, uh, learn a function to outputs. So maybe let's let's take like a more concrete example of this. Like an everyday example would be like, you know, let's say you don't, you know, it's a little bit contrived, but you can't look at your phone and you want to know like, is it going to rain today? Well, you know, you look outside, you'd maybe step outside and feel the weather, see if it feels humid. Uh, and then you'd make a decision about, you know, whether it's going to rain or not, right? Uh, you could think of, you know, meteorologists have, you know, way more data, they can see further, they have lots of more measurements and bigger models that actually predict whether it's going to rain and where it's going to rain. Um, so that's a kind of an everyday example of, you know, how uh, data and models can can um, can help you, you know, decide whether to bring an umbrella. Moving to the context of the revenue cycle, let's say you're trying to decide, you know, what, you know, what account should I work today, right? If you're trying to predict sort of the value of those accounts, uh, you can kind of look at the different uh, features of them. You could say, you know, what's the outstanding amount? Uh, has this been denied? Are there reasons it's been denied? Uh, and try to sort of prioritize based on that. Or you can use a model to predict, you know, what's the amount I'm going to be paid if I work this, right? And you can factor in many, many more features, help that kind of drive how you prioritize that work. Um, so that in both those, uh, in both the scenarios, that's sort of a, like a supervised learning paradigm. Um, and that's sort of one way in which uh, uh, machine learning can be applied to the revenue cycle. Um, I'll pause there and, and uh, answer any questions you guys have. Um, or I can kind of shift that's like a nice transition to sort of how Janice is using machine learning in the revenue cycle. How How is it that, you know, from a standpoint of somebody new, right? So if, I, if mm -hmm. I'm if i coming to say, hey, I want to learn more about how it can, the algorithm is going to work. So I, I know like, for instance, in Epic, we have um, work queue scoring and that score is basically what creates the algorithm is my understanding high level <laughs> to say, okay, for these accounts, it's going to populate and tell my, my follow-up teams to do this first and then this account second and that. So is that essentially the same, but they've you're, we're just taking this now to a bigger component and saying, okay, well, we're taking all of these different aspects versus just appending a score to it, but we're going to also look at timely filing and all these other components and then and then kick out a new output. Um, yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's a couple of ways to think about that. So, um, one of them is sort of like how the, how that model is created, right? Whether it's sort of expertise driven, uh, with a little bit of data input, purely data driven. So you're training a model to predict this. We're, we're going to do this, um, uh, automatically over time. Um, and that's actually another important point. So, you know, crafting, built, building and sort of implementing a scoring algorithm in Epic isn't necessarily dynamic, right? You configure it and you can tweak it over time, but there still is that configuration versus 
gathering data over time, being able to retrain a model, redeploy a model that sort of learns over time um, and is able to do that automatically. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's it's a similar component. So the, the, the same kind of way of uh, providing a score and ordering things based on a score is exactly the same idea. It's sort of a question of, you know, where does that model or scoring algorithm come from? How does it change over time? Is those are the key key differences? Perfect. Okay. I'm just trying to like think about like the robustness of like a model. So like if I'm like an organization, I want to get plugged in, and maybe I have like a use case or two that I could see there being value. Is that something that like I can take this model and just like apply it to the use case I want, or are these models like structured and needing to be formed like organization by organization or just like plugged into like a specific use case that's been like pre-configured. Like how do, how do I think about that and how do I get plugged in? Oh yeah. 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 So there, there's a kind of a question of like, are these, um, if, if you are trying to tackle this, you know, from scratch, the kinds of models that exist are pretty standard, right? So, you know, you, you can kind of reach from a toolkit uh, of, you know, pretty standard models it doesn't have to be anything fancy, right? Um, the key thing about each organization is, you know, if you're going to approach this, what you'd want to know is sort of what are the features um, that are sort of relevant for each kind of prediction I'm making? So if it's an account, you know, what are the features of the account that are relevant? And what's the outcome, right? So if the outcome is, you know, trying to, to value things uh, accurately, so to predict the actual value, that's that's one metric. And the last thing is sort of like, what is the the, the business KPI that you're trying to uh, to maximize? Because the model can can sometimes, if you if you don't have those, um, if they're not the same, that you can kind of train a model that does one thing really well, but doesn't necessarily provide business value. So I think the key things are, you know, defining the um, the features that you want to use, and those will be pretty standard across organizations, right? You'd think, you know, if, if you're building an, an epic scoring algorithm, you'd reach for the sort of the same kinds of features and, and collect those over time. Uh, same thing about the outcome. You kind of want to know, is this uh, is this the highest value thing? But then you might want to balance other things. So for example, if you want to take into account um, timely, timely appeal, uh, you might have sort of aging built into the model or aging built around the model to handle things like, well, I know this is, you know, isn't doesn't seem as valuable, but it's about to expire, so we should address it now. So that's out that could be outside of the model and helps you understand and sort of maximize whatever KPI at sort of the the business level you want. So to answer your question, yeah, like the 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 use case is going to be pretty common across different customers. So the key thing is like, what's the data we need? What are we trying to predict? And how does this fit into like our overall goals as an organization? What are the KPIs we're actually tracking and and trying to use the model to improve. And it feels like that should be pretty reportable as well to see like I've plugged in this model, I've scored it. I can see a real business use case to say like, we are now collecting X amount more or we are working X yeah. amount or just because of this came in on day one, here's where we're at at day 90 versus like the past 90 days or something like that. Yeah, so the ideal scenario for this from like a data science perspective, which is a hard a hard ask is doing an A-B test, right? So you have some folks who, you know, you know, just work how they normally do. You have another set of folks who work uh, strictly based on the recommendations of the model. And then you're able to say, all right, 
we can compare these two over time and see what sort of the actual impact of the model was and being able to sort of rank things by that and whether, you know, it improved over some baseline, let's say like outstanding amount or something like that. But, you know, that's that's a hard, it, it operationally, that's hard to implement sometimes. So it's in, in some scenarios, you can also just say, all right, everybody's doing it. And we're going to say, take your, you know, the last month's performance and this month's performance and see, you know, the difference in the differences. So for everybody, you know, how well did everybody improve? Um, but there's always, you know, I, my, I have some folks on my team who would, are incredibly smart people and know, you know, there's there's lots of tricky things to deal with when you when you have these different experimental designs. But yeah, it is it is trackable. And that's the great thing about it. You can actually sit down and design an experiment and run it uh, and and try to quantify how this actually is is changing things. Yeah, I have a question for you. When you think about like an A-B test, like what comes mm -hmm. to mind for you? Are you okay with like structuring your staff um, and, and like working two different two different models there? Or uh, does that give you like a heart palpitation when, <laughs> when thinking about who you might get, uh, you might be assigned to that work? I don't know. I, you know, the more I think about that from my perspective, like I think it, what I would probably do is do an A-B test for two different teams, but that do the same work. So I would look at it, here's for my professional billing team, B, A, and then maybe my hospital billing team, follow-up team, B, B. They're both caught having to call the same payers. They're both having to review claims the exact same way. They're just different types of claims, right? So, but the methods in processing things are going to be very similar, little slight differences in where they go within the system to get data and information, but the physical workflow would be very similar and even how they score some of the stuff and, and the contracts, you know, timeliness and all of that append the exact same way. So I would think I would try to do it that way versus saying, hey, half of my follow-up hospital follow-up team is going to do this versus that because I think that will cause them confusion, especially if they're both working, end up having to cross and touch the same account at some point in time. So, Yeah, that's an interesting um, insight and in some ways that that complicates the experimental design, right? So I, I totally understand that organizationally, but being able to compare apples to apples is the real goal of that, right? So there you're kind of comparing apples to oranges. Um, so that's actually, that's that's good to know that's how you think about it. One way you could approach that is to say, let's limit the scope to a smaller team, right? Let's say we're gonna go focus on HB because sort of the the, the cash volume is much higher Right. And so if there's, you know, something to be gained, it's going to be bigger there. Right. That's one way to approach this and say, split the team, have some work, you know, one way, have some work, you know, how they have been doing. And that that kind of simplifies things. Another way to think about um, this kind of input is it's sort of like net new information. Right. So it's always like presumably it's going to be a, a gain, a net gain. Overall, right. So what's really happening is you're the, this, the whole idea of an A-B test is you're like getting information about how things could work. So in that sense, like the, the investment of doing this, you know, is kind of an, an experiment in, in gathering information about how things could work better. Um, so I think the, the, the goal might be to then focus in on operationally, how do you make that easy enough to do? And, uh, 
again, splitting, you know, splitting by team directly means you won't get sort of that apples to apples comparison. So ideally you'd be able to split within a team to kind of understand the true, the true effects of what's uh, of the, the model. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, you know, hearing that, I think that where, where I then might apply it is if you have like a governmental team versus a commercial team, your commercial mm -hmm. is going to be your higher dollar governmental's more controlled in what they can do now. So you have, while you have limited ability to make a lot of changes because of how Medicare and Medicaid operates, you still have the ability to modify your workflows more fluidly mm -hmm. and do things. So that might be your control case is putting it on if your teams are split between commercial and governmental is maybe focusing on your governmental where it's stagnant and the dollars usually just flow through, but you yeah. could isolate it down to more of a um, where the dollars are for those outliers that the dollars aren't just automatically coming in for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that that insight of like how to structure things is something that we work really closely with uh, both our internal subject matter experts, but also our customers uh, to figure out, you know, like they have such good insight into how things are structured, how things are working currently. What we're trying to figure out is, you know, how do we uh, work together to identify sort of where we can improve that, that whole process. Maybe okay. just um, thinking about like installing a data model um, mm -hmm. or like getting a data model plugged in. Is there like a large lift for like IT? Like maybe I'm a listener, I'm operations. I'm, I've been looking to explore something like this. Is there like a steps or like conversations that I should be having around my hospital for exploring, like getting this set up and rolled out? Yeah, I think so. The, you know, this is sort of like one, one aspect of what Janice is working on. Uh, I'd love to talk to sort of more, more holistically about all the different ways we're using um, uh, machine learning. Uh, but yeah, so that it, it comes back down to, you know, what are the data sources we need for this? So we're relying on like standard X12, uh, 835s and 837s in the AR follow space. And, you know, pretty lightweight uh, EHR extracts um, to be able to structure that. So that's sort of like getting the data itself, um, training the model. Uh, and then that's, that's sort of done on our side um, in the cloud. Uh, and then being able to get those predictions back into the system of work uh, is sort of, you know, if we're working with Epic that we've, we've done the most with, it's an Epic integration. So it's a daily file. Um, so it comes, comes back down to, you know, getting, getting all the data, making the predictions and then getting them back in like a, a CRD or 277. So that's like, that's the general workflow. What, of, did, of, what uh, did you just tell us? <laughs> oh, it's a bunch okay. of, a uh, bunch of extracts, a okay. bunch of interfaces. We're, yeah. we're so it's like back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there, it's like, <laughs> There's data on the customer side. X12 data is like really easy to work with, right? It's, it's you know, it's relatively standard. You know, it's a standard, uh, you know, those files are, you know, usually easy to access for customers. We have sort of a, a lightweight um, extract, which is just allowing us to kind of pair that with that X12 data, which is easy to access to build up kind of the history of claims over time, right? So we're trying to focus it on like the most easy to access standard kind of data that we can get, build up a history of claims over time, uh, train a model on that to predict different outcomes. So that, that includes things like uh, largely focusing on sort of the, the paid amount for this use case. 
um, being able to then say, okay, we're able to predict this paid amount. We can now say, you know, of all of your outstanding AR, here's sort of the highest, you know, highest value things. This is ranked the highest work them like this. We have all that data and then we need to get it back into the system, system of records. So let's say that's Epic. There are different ways of ingesting that data back into Epic. Um, so there's, you know, CRD files, 277 files. I'm, I'm not an Epic expert, um, but I think I've, you know, by osmosis, I've learned some of this at least, but there's, there's ways of getting that back in. So it really is just about like, if you want to do this, think about, you know, what data you have access to uh, and sort of what, how do you get data back into the system uh, that you, that you need to actually drive the work. Perfect. Well, let's take a quick break and then let's dive into how Janice is doing this with their clients. There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance. And we're back. Okay, Chris. So um, as I cut you off there, <laughs> we were diving into okay. some of the items and, you know, talking about what is Janice kind of doing in the machine learning AI space and then what and kind of we alluded to some of the internal machine learning there with Epic, uh, like work you scoring. Um, for instance, how are you, you know, we'd love to learn more about Janice and what, what types of products and services that you guys are offering to your clients and how those are then integrating back into, you know, Epic or other EMR systems. Um, and, and some of that, we know Epic's going to have their own internal version. And then we also know for other EMRs that they might be still in that development phase. So you could be offsetting that for our listener. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, Great segue. Um, and so we kind of talked about, you know, work queue prioritization. That's what we focused on. And that's sort of one, one application of machine learning that we've we've worked on. Um, and I kind of want to take a step back and talk a little bit about sort of how does that fit into the bigger picture of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, so in addition to sort of, you know, understanding all of the sort of the, the that's sort of packaged into our claim solution, which is really about getting claim statuses uh, and being able to kind of prioritize work once you know that status. Um, we're largely focused on kind of two other aspects of our platform. Uh, one of them is our sort of process intelligence aspect and I'll kind of get into the details of that. And then the other is sort of our automation platform. And those are kind of, those two combine very nicely together. So I'll, I'll get into what process intelligence is uh, and how that feeds into automation. Um, so the the real goal is, you know, being able to accurately automate as much of the revenue cycle work as we can, right? Um, that that's that's what we're aiming to do. And importantly, I think one of our uh, one of the folks on our growth team says, uh, take take the robot out of the human, 
um, which I think is a really nice way of putting it. What we're trying to do is focus in on the things that can be automated so that uh, revenue cycle workers and operators can really focus on the things that are hard to do, right? Are hard to, are hard to automate that require a lot of sort of um, a lot of experience and know-how and are very nuanced. So have them be able to focus on that. So what our process intelligence platform is, is it's um, software that is capturing uh, metadata about how people are doing their work. Uh, all of that metadata gets uh, ingested through a machine learning pipeline. And when we get out the other end of that is, uh, here's, what, here's how this user did their work. Right, we're aggregating this across many, many differences of the same workflow. So, you know, you got this denial reason from this payer, uh, and we see that you know hundreds or thousands of times. Understanding how people are doing the work, what variations there are, and ultimately what leads to the best outcome. Right. When you take those steps and say we've gathered a lot of data and we've figured out what the best outcome is, the next thing that feeds into is automation. Right. So you say, okay, if you know sort of the, the path through this whole workflow, there's lots of variation. Uh, how do we break that down into steps and translate that into something that can be automated? So that's kind of the, the there's sort of being able to kind of manage what you're currently doing, optimize that, but that fits into sort of, you know, the longer term vision of, you know, finding out what the right way to do work is um, and actually making it happen. Do you, in, in looking at that, automation of work and and all in that component and you're taking different users do, then do you retro apply that back to say okay here's the algorithm and while we're learning to build out this machine here's where you also back to back to the clients here's where you have variation of people doing things differently and we need to one figure out how to streamline that or two is this meant to be variation because of the type of information that's that they're collecting yeah, that's that's an awesome question. And you can kind of think about this in terms of like starting with descriptive kind of statistics, moving to predictive statistics and then prescriptive, right? There's sort of a, a, a staircase to do that. The first point you, you made or one of the points you made is, you know, start off by just showing them how work is currently done. And depending on how you group things, what you might you what you might say is, oh, well, there's two paths that are pretty clear for this workflow. And what I could tell you is, you know, people are doing things in very different ways, or there's some other, there, there's some other feature of an account that tells you that it goes down one path versus another, right? And, you know, showing that to an operator, they might say, oh yeah, it's because, you know, if, if this, this, or this condition is met, you do it one way. If not, this is a standard way. So there it's, it's about, I think you're exactly right. Figuring out the right level of granularity and grouping um, and doing that automatically as well. So gathering a lot of data being able to show this to operators and have have them give us input so we can figure out sort of how to group things um, and get the right level of grouping and then ultimately be able to do that automatically. Um, the step beyond that is, you know, let's say we have the right grouping and we say, yeah, this should all be done the same, we think, and there is variance or there, there is variation. Uh, then the question becomes like, is this about, you know, retraining? Do we need to update our SOP? Like the standard way of doing things. Uh, just remind people that, you know, this is how this has worked uh, and get them sort of uh, all, all doing the same thing. Uh, but then the last piece of that too is like, maybe people have discovered a better way of, of doing this work. And so we actually want to look at, you know, the, the variation and see, is it tied to differences in outcome, right? 
Uh, are there trade-offs of, you know, one, one sort of way of doing this work takes, you know, a lot longer? Um, do we factor, we can factor in sort of the cost of work. So that sort of the net, uh, the net benefit um, in different ways. But ultimately, once you figure that out and say, you know, yeah, we've we've looked at the data, right? We've looked at these sort of uh, the sort of the workflow as a whole. We've identified that this is sort of the right way to group things together. This is the best outcome. Then we can move on to sort of the the prescriptive stage where we're saying we should do this, uh, and let's let's figure out how to automatically make that happen. Perfect. Um, what what are some of the things that you know, as you start to engage with a client are kind of those first checklists that you want them to be able to say, to even see if they're ready for this type of support of bringing in. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, I think uh, almost all operators are really willing to explore how how they can do things better. I think that's, that's something that, you know, it's a really hard, it's a really hard job. Right there's there's a lot of complexity, and things change very quickly, um, and so I think anything and everything that we can do to help you know help folks you know get on top of things and stay on top of things, everybody is very receptive to that. Um, and so I think there there it's it's really about that like knowing knowing where where there are pain points, but also being able to communicate and help help us focus on you know where we can. We're, we're capturing this vast amount of data, right? We're kind of trying to distill it down, being ready and willing to kind of work through that and kind of figure out, you know, where can we where can we take the next steps uh, to kind of, uh, you know, figure out uh, how to optimize things is, is really, it's just bringing that willingness. And I think that's something that, that all of our customers do bring. Where else are you, uh, what other spaces of revenue cycle or healthcare are you guys diving into? Um... Yeah, so uh, kind of the the things I've talked about um, are largely sort of like the, the back end of the revenue cycle. Um, so uh, thinking about, um, you know, follow-up, what we'd like to be able to do is sort of take take this same approach and apply it to, you know, throughout the, the sort of the full revenue cycle. So as much as possible, we're trying to figure out how to do is uh, um, fix things downstream, but also kind of cascade that back upstream. So, you know, if you're, you're getting, you know, particular kinds of denials in the air follow-up, you can automate working those, right? But ultimately what you like to be able to do is figure out why they were denied in the first place, go back up to billing, get those fixed uh, there. Um, Another uh, another solution we have, so this is sort of um, like our claim claim statusing solution. Uh, we have a prior auth solution. So again, that's sort of further further upstream uh, in the process. Uh, but again, the goal is building out the same set of tools, being able to capture a lot of rich data, uh, get more um, get more out of it. Um, understand the patterns of how work is being done. And that same kind of like tool set can be applied in, in sort of throughout the revenue cycle. We haven't done anything sort of outside of the revenue cycle. Um, we've, we've largely been focused on honing and kind of refining that process in, in a particular area. Um, so that, that's kind of been our focus to, to date. Okay. And what would that look like? Like, for example, like in a prior auth, like 
that almost feels a little bit real time to me. Like I'm in the moment I'm versus like a follow-up. It's like, I have all yeah. the data there. It's something that like somebody's looking at in a work queue or work post, whatever they're doing. And um, there maybe isn't a time urgency versus like, if I'm getting a prior auth that might be a little bit more real time, a little bit more urgent. Yeah. How does the flexibility of a model like precipitate between like a real time situation versus a non real time situation? Yeah, that's a really good question. You're, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's like very different paradigms of, you know, let's say getting a claim status is not, you know, urgent. You want to be able to do it at sort of like at the right time, uh, kind of on a schedule. So let's say like every week or every two weeks or something like that. When you're, you know, doing prior auth, it like it's a user driven kind of workflow, right? They, they click a button and they expect a response and there have to be kind of requirements there. Uh, for that, um, it is a different paradigm, right? So we're, we're figuring out optimal workflows um, independently of the actual sort of like implementation and use of those. So in both those, in, in both those scenarios, there isn't necessarily a conflict. Uh, if you know, if you've sort of created an automation that performs, you know, the, the prior auth workflow, uh, you can basically kind of hook that up to a, a user request in real time. Right. So it doesn't have to go through like a larger sort of uh, a larger pipeline or process for that to for that to be um, possible. Um, that's a really good question because you know you're not gonna you're not gonna say we'll get back to you next week about this this prior auth request. You know we have to have you know the the actual um, the response in in not real time but in in some reasonable kind of time frame. Yeah. And then. Just a question we, we mentioned or alluded to this in the beginning, but like generative AI, um, what is that and how is that different than like the automation versus like the predictability scoring ranking that we've talked about so far? Yeah. Um, so I'll kind of come, come, come at this from sort of the perspective of recent developments and particularly focused on uh, large language models which is sort of, you know, if you guys have seen uh, GPT or if, if, sorry, sort of checked out chat GPT, uh, a lot of cool things to do with that. Um, if you haven't, I would very highly recommend it. Um, but the basic uh, paradigm of that is you, uh, you take, you know, a ton of text data and you're training a model to kind of fill in the blank, right? So you have, you know, a, a paragraph or a sentence and you're training a model to say like what word comes comes next, right? So if you do this over massive amounts of data with a really big model, what you end up with sort of is a a model that has learned to um, learned a lot of the properties of language, which is a kind of a, a crazy thing, but kind of a, a really cool uh, fact. If you do this with enough data, uh, what you can then start to to do is to ask it to output uh, certain responses to certain kinds of questions. Um, this is spe specifically focused on languages and output. There's kind of parallels to this that have happened in with images too. Uh, but the idea here is you have a prompt that you uh, provide and you get a response. So if you say, you know, something like, um, uh, you know, write me a, a plan or write me a poem. I think this is, these are some of the funnest ones are like, write me a poem about the revenue cycle or something like that. Um, it will, it will generate things that are, you know, about the revenue cycle and um, uh, are actually, you know, not terrible. 
uh, folks on my team have had some fun uh, doing that uh, and kind of coming up with some funny poems. Uh, but the, the basic idea is that what you're getting is sort of like a an open-ended response to a prompt, right? It's generating this response based on your input and the properties it's learned from a, a lot, a lot of data. Um, so this is a, uh, this kind of comes to a question of like, how can we use this or where is it appropriate to use this? Um, so one of the uh, one of the challenges of of using sort of um, these kinds of models and these approaches is it can depend on the domain you're trying to apply it to. So in in a lot of instances when you're trying to um, you know, let's say generate like ad content or marketing stuff. It's open-ended and you can generate things. And if it's approximately right, that's great, right? There's no sort of like uh, um, hard and fast categorical, uh, this is correct or not. It's kind of, it's a gradient, right? In scenarios where you're trying to, let's say like automate things, it becomes a little bit more complicated, right? So, especially when there are sort of systems that have, you know, outside consequences, you want to be very careful and mindful about uh, generating um, actions or having effects in systems that are sort of um, unintended. So there's kind of a, there's, there's one sort of general, like I think cautionary tale of, you know, make sure to understand the domain of the output, whether there's a human in the loop that can kind of correct things if they're wrong and also make sure that sort of uh, the, um, potential external consequences are kind of limited in scope. Um, I do think that there's, uh, there's a, there are still great uh, applications if you can sort of build a system that has those kinds of guardrails in, into it. Um, I'm trying to think about like mm -hmm. where this would sit in like revenue cycle specifically, like maybe I'm like typing out a letter to a payer, like it could automate like some of those, that information or like craft my response or like responding to a patient for some yeah. sort of inquiry. I could do it there. Like where, I mean, I don't want to like get into like, I don't know how much you can disclose about what you all right. do, but, <laughs> um, but where does like Janice sit or exploring uh, that type of work? Yeah. So I think there's really, there's, there's kind of like a, a, a metaphor we use in sort of all of that process data that we're, that we're gathering. We are kind of, and I, I won't go into too many more details, but we're kind of like treating that as like the language of the revenue cycle. So when you adopt that mindset or that, that kind of lens of, of looking at the data, there's lots of ways to apply those same techniques to that data. Um, but coming back to, to your question of like, where could we apply this? Like you're, you're exactly right where there's text that needs to be generated. That's uh, like a perfect opportunity for that. There's also actually a, a, a reasonable amount of text that can be extracted um, from or, or sort of values, can, information can be extracted from text using these kinds of models. There we have kind of the same, the same uh, difficulty of making sure that, you know, it uh, it's very precise, right? So if you don't, you know, we get a letter and we say, let's let's pull out the, the patient name and the date of birth, the date of service, you know, sometimes it may get it wrong, right? Other other systems or other kinds of models may be more reliable or easier to kind of um, train to do the thing we want if they're purpose built for that. But at the same time, these like very large and and really uh, interesting and impressive models can do similar things to that. 
So it's the same kind of question of like, or the, the, the point I made earlier of saying, you know, if you're going to use things, um, uh, make sure there are guardrails in place, make sure there's a human in the loop to continually validate that it's, it's getting the right thing. It's basically you, you, you need monitoring, right? So I think the, the bigger picture is we're still figuring out like all the different ways you can use this, but yeah, like text is a really great area. If you, if you have a lot of freeform text, especially if it's not structured in a, in a nice way, that's a great application for these. But I think, um, I, you know, very much recommend that people, you know, get a get an account with OpenAI. Uh, don't put any PHI in there, but just like play around with it. Like, you know, use it for certain things. Um, figure, and I think that the more people like interact with these tools, the more ideas that will come. The, you know, I, one of the, the best things about what we're, what we're working on is that sort of the, the sky's the limit. It's really about like how, how you can be creative and apply these tools to solve problems. So there's a ton of, there's a ton of work to, to do. If you start with these areas where we think, you know, we're going to, you know, where there's text, you know, great application for it. Um, but the more, the more, you know, use cases we can come up with, the better. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. And we're back. Just as we're, we're wrapping up, Chris, um, just want to like talk through like pitfalls or um, maybe like various learnings that you just like want to like caution folks when they're like rolling this out. I know um, it's it can be a big effort. It can be maybe not scary per se, but you're you're kind of handing off the keys a little bit to some sort of automation, some sort of tool to do to supplement your work. Um, just anything you want to like leave our listeners with, just make sure that they're, if they're having these conversations and if it isn't with you, like what types of things should they be like, this person's not saying the right thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's, there's always the risk of um, models hallucinating. And so this is when they're sort of, they're, they're confidently telling you the wrong thing, but very confidently. Um, so one example I, I mentioned to you guys was um, somebody asking, it was either ChatGPT or Bing about, you know, how many ends are in the word mayonnaise? And it's saying very confidently, you know, one. Then, you know, follow-up was, you know, are you sure? Here's a, a link to Webster and saying, yes, there are, there's one end in there. Um, and even and even responding, like, yes, mayonnaise with two, two ends has one end in it. Um, so there, there's risks of sort of the model just being wrong. So I think as, as things start to mature, it's, it's easy to build sort of like cool proof of concept demos, building larger scale, like products and or systems that are, um, reliable, um, and safe is actually a, a big engineering undertaking. So I think, uh, that's, that's where most of the challenge lies. And I think what you want to um, what you really want to look out, look out for is, uh, an understanding of, you know, what the actual sort of use case is, right? Not, a, you know, we've got a big hammer, but not everything is a nail. 
sometimes smaller or simpler systems will do better and meet your use case. So start by, you know, doing things simply, right? Um, so, so people call, you know, just, you know, simple keyword matching AI, right? I mean, if it, if it does the trick, start with something simple um, and kind of escalate in terms of things uh, as needed. Um, other things to kind of look out for is um, whether there are humans in the loop, right? So it's, it's especially important for in healthcare to know kind of have, have guardrails and or um, kind of systems that allow people to intervene where it's needed. Um, so I think having a, you know, a very clear idea of the system, not just, you know, we're going to send all this information to an API and get back some magical response. There has to be some kind of um, guardrails and sort of systems around that to make sort of keep track of, you know, how it's performing, uh, when there are exceptions, things like that. And the last thing I think, especially for, for healthcare, um, to think about, you know, uh, be very careful about sending PHI anywhere, right? So for any of these kinds of models, um, there are now open source models that can be used for different purposes and self-hosted. Um, so those are, are probably um, uh, the sort of longer term, those are potentially solutions to this kind of problem or tools to use for this problem. Um, so all of those kind of considerations of, you know, when people are talking about this, make sure they understand it's, it's not magic, right? Sometimes, you know, simple tools we have already work and can be used. Uh, it's, it's more about systems than just a single uh, model and where those models live, whether it's sort of uh, an API you're accessing, so it's somebody else's model versus your own and you're hosting it uh, and can kind of know sort of that uh, everything is HIPAA compliant. Those are all key things to kind of keep in mind. Is the just one last question? What what is one area that you would recommend revenue cycle leaders or revenue cycle and their IT teams to start to think about if they've not already started playing with some form of AI where and machine learning? Where would you recommend them maybe get their feet wet? Oh, I mean, I think um, like we getting getting your feet wet, I think especially around anything that has a lot of text, right? And there's tons of different areas. So like, you know, correspondence coming in, um, that's a huge area that you could apply this. Um, again, like I think the, the approach should be, you know, if we're trying to solve a problem, do we have simpler solutions first? Um, kind of like from from a building building a system, you know, what's the simplest solution that would meet our need? But if it doesn't, anywhere where there's a lot of text that is um, you want to get things out of or to generate are areas where where people can get their feet wet for sure. Perfect. Right. I think, I think we've done a pretty good job today. That was uh, I learned a lot. Thanks, Chris, for uh, for joining us here. I know this, yeah, I see headlines about about this stuff every day and it's like how does how does it apply to healthcare how does it apply to what we do every day and i don't mm -hmm. see those headlines as often uh so <laughs> appreciate you taking the time here if um as we're thinking about like next steps like folks wanting to like connect i know our listeners like know how to reach out and i but chris is there a best way for folks that they're like exploring this want to talk to you want to talk to janice like yeah. what's the best way to get in touch yeah uh via via email uh is, is probably the fastest way or via LinkedIn. 
So my email is chris at janus-ai.com. Um, and LinkedIn, I'm, I'm one of many uh, Chris Aherns, uh, but I'm the only one at Janus. So if, if folks want to find me that way, uh, they can for sure. Well, perfect. Uh, thank you again, Chris. Thanks, Daniel, um, for an early morning recording. I sure learned way more than I ever. <laughs> this was an interesting episode for me. I'm usually the talker, and this time Daniel had to take the lead, so it was nice. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure. Um, and once again, everybody, uh, check us out on YouTube as well If um, and submit those questions. We uh, were not able to get to the Wilshire Lab today, but please submit questions in the future. <laughs> That's it. Have a great day. Bye-bye. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire podcast at the wilshiregroup.net. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.